of God brings heaven to earth. It leaves culture upturned and the kingdom upright. The kingdom is pure and holy. It is blessed and set apart. It is righteous beyond all understanding. It is generous beyond earning. Our God's kingdom is good news. His kingdom is saving grace. It rattles our reality and shakes us awake. And it pours out of us as salt and as light. It brings perspective that changes the way we think. It brings vision that changes the way we see. It brings growth that changes who we are. It brings surrender that changes how we live. The kingdom is kindness that doesn't feel fake. And the kingdom is patience that doesn't make sense. It is forgiveness when it doesn't seem possible. It is for the poor in spirit, the lowly, and the persecuted. The kingdom is his, his kingdom is ours, and the kingdom of God is here. Hey everybody, welcome uh, to Cornwall. I'm glad that you're with us today. And before I get into the sermon, I just want to say uh, thank you to all of those who put on and participated with the uh, Cornwall Christmas Lane. I mean, wow, what a deal. At both of our campuses, the lights and the music and the people and then your generosity. One of the things I always say, it's because it's true, is that that we have such a generous church, and especially this year, as you came and you donated toys, uh, it allows us to continue to be kingdom bringers in our community and uh, in this time of year, and in this year in particular, um, in Skagit to be able to help out the Young Lives families, and here in um, Bellingham to be able to help out with the community toy store, and to just to be a blessing to our neighbors and to our community. Again, thank you so much for those of you who participated Thank you for those of you who volunteered and put that together. That was amazing. And we've got some great stuff coming up uh, for the rest of our, our Christmas season. And I hope that you'll engage in that and be a part of that. Um, but way to go. So today we're going to continue on in this best sermon ever series called Kingdom Culture that we've been looking at at the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached found in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And if you've been with us in this, you know that we've had, we've had to skip over large portions of the Sermon on the Mount just uh, because of time and finishing this up. We saw that in, in each of the chapters, chapter 5 and chapter 6. And again, this week, uh, as we go in, uh, continue into chapter 7, large portions we'll have to skip over. And important pas uh, passages, like the one on prayer where it says, ask and it will be given, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open. Not even going to have time to talk about that. Or, or the apex, the, the, probably the most famous saying of Jesus of all time, what we know as the golden rule, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. No time for that. I mean, there is time for that, but not in this sermon or, or in this series. And what's, what's uh, amazing about the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus covers a lot of different topics, a lot of different issues. I mean, if you think about the last couple of weeks, last week, Pastor Scott talking about this whole issue of, of judgment and being judgmental. Uh, the week before that, Pastor Kip uh, pointed out how Jesus talked about us worrying and the anxiety of life. And throughout, there's all these different topics, different subject matters. And because of that, over the years, there have been some who believed that the Sermon on the Mount was not a sermon that was given. It was more of a, a collection of the talks and the teachings of Jesus that Matthew had compiled after three years. Matthew had kind of condensed down, kind of a, almost like 
the greatest hits, the best of. Here are different talks that he, he talked about and he puts them all together kind of in this one collective thing called the Sermon on the Mount. And that, that could be the case. The danger with looking at it that way is that we begin to proof text, just grabbing things for certain subjects, and it's possible to take them out of context. And the bigger danger, I think, is to miss the overriding theme that goes throughout the unified discourse of the Sermon on the Mount, which is life in the kingdom of God, thus the kingdom culture. And that was what was so important. As we've gone back to many, many times, Jesus goes around throughout the area talking about the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 4, it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So he brings this good news of the kingdom. Let me remind you again that the kingdom of God now, through Jesus, has become available to ordinary ordinary people, like here and now, that we can live in and experience the presence and the power of God. That's the good news. So he's preaching that message, and then in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, and this is what life in the kingdom is like. This is what it looks like to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. This is how life is in his kingdom here and now. And today I've entitled this sermon, um, uh, I'll close with this, part one which implies there's a, I'll close with this, part two, which would be next week. And the reason I'm using this is because of where we are in the sermon and because of some stuff I experienced as a kid. As I've mentioned before, my dad was a pastor. I went to a lot of church services, heard a lot of sermons, and especially on Sunday, Sunday morning and Sunday night, and then we had other places that we went and heard sermons and other preachers. And there's a line that I would, as a, as a little kid, I would hear in church from what, whoever was preaching, and they would say, I'll close with this. And I got to the point in my cynical little mind as a child where I would kind of roll my eyes and say, sure, because it sounds like they're going to land the plane, but the reality is a lot of preachers would say, I'll close with this, and then they would go on and on and on. And then if there's an altar call and all 75 verses of just as I am. And so I, when I heard those words, I'll close with this, it's kind of like, uh, men, if you ask uh, your wife or your girlfriend or, or a friend that's a female, how soon will you be ready? And she says, give me five minutes. <laughs> that's a good answer. Uh, ladies, it's like this. If you say to your boyfriend, your husband, the guys, whatever, hey, how soon till the, the game is over? Oh, there's only three and a half minutes left. What they don't say is both teams have all three of their timeouts left and there's still the two-minute warning. So it's like, yeah, it might get there. Well, as we get to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gets to this point where he's coming to the conclusion where if he was a preacher like I grew up with, he would probably say, I'll close with this. Because where we are today, he turns a corner and he kind of brings it home. He, he kind of makes it personal. And what you find when Jesus is talking this way, and as he's con concluding this sermon, is that he's giving this whole sermon, and it's not, his goal is not to just pass on information. It's not an educational sermon. That's not his primary goal. In fact, his primary goal is not just to inspire you either. It's, it's not to just, you know, kind of get you all fired up about something. And it's not just to give you some ideas to think about, some concepts to ponder, some stuff to discuss. 
what we find with Jesus is that he wants to see lives changed. And what he comes to this conclusion, it's an invitation to transformation. It's an invitation. He's inviting them to not just hear these words, but to have significant a meaningful change in their lives, which is, which is what we all desire. I mean, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it talks about how we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. That it's not just about filling our heads with knowledge and information. It's not just about educating or getting theories or ideas or concepts. It's about changing our lives. And so he gives them this invitation to transformation. So in the last 15 verses from chapter 7, verse 13, to chapter 7, verse 27. In these last verses, he uses multiple contrasts. He'll, he'll bring about these, these contrasts, many different ones, which we won't have time to go into, but he'll contrast like two different gates, two different roads, two different destinations, two different kinds of trees, two different kinds of fruit, two different responses. Two different builders, two different foundations, two different houses, two different outcomes. He just contrasts these all the way through. Today we're going to look primarily at one of those, and then next week we're going to look primarily at one other one, so we won't get into all of those. But he does these contrasts, and in so doing, all the way through, what you see is that Jesus is pressing for a decision. He's asking them to make a choice. What he's saying to them is he's been talking about this good news of the kingdom that they're all invited into, what life in the kingdom looks like, what it's going to be if they come as a part of this kingdom. And then he gets to this point where he's saying, each one of us has one life. And I want to ask you, what are you going to do with your one life? And what are you going to do with your one life in light of this new information you have about the kingdom of God? This new option for how you can live your life. I don't want you to just tell me if you agree or disagree. I don't really care if you like or dislike. What he says is, I want to know, are you going to make this the reality of your life? He brings him to this crossroad to this point where he says, I want you to make a decision. You've got to make a choice. And this isn't new to, to do that. I mean, if you were with us last summer, we spent the entire summer studying the life of Moses and saw over and over again how Moses' life was like this foreshadowing of Jesus. He was a type of what Jesus would, would do, what he would be, what he would fulfill. And we saw this at the end of Moses' life. He comes to Israel. He knows that he's not long for this world. And he brings them to this crossroad, to this decision point. He presses them. And we looked at this maybe three months ago. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses says, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you. And here's the contrast. Life and death. Blessings and curses. And he gives them the answer. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life. He says, you've got to make a choice. Jer uh, Joshua does the same thing. Joshua comes before the people of God and he says, listen, if serving the Lord does not seem pleasant to you, that's your choice. Choose you this day whom you will serve. And that famous line, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here's this choice point. Here's this, this decision that you've got to make. In 1979, Bob Dylan, in his, uh, in his album Slow Train, in the song Serve Somebody, throws the same thing out. And I'm going to give you my best Bob Dylan, which is kind of an oxymoron, because the best Bob Dylan sounds like Bob Dylan. 
But in this song, he says, it might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. All right, so he says, listen, you've got to make a choice. Okay, on that note, let's move on. So let's get to this point, this contrast, the first contrast that Jesus pulls out. If you're with us, you have the, the Bible app with you or your notes or your tablet or your Bible. We're in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at chapter, uh, verses 13 and 14 to see this contrast that Jesus draws. Jesus says this. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many, men are, many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. You see this contrast. There's two gates, there's two paths, there's two groups, and those who find one, they have different destinations. Now, when, when I read this, enter through the narrow gate, wide uh, gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, many enter through it, but the small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, two things immediately come to mind. The first thing is a hike that my wife and I took years ago. We had gone to Phoenix, Arizona. We we're going to do some hiking. And on the south part of Phoenix, down by Mesa and Gilbert, there's a place called South Mountain Park. We had done some research about some hikes. This is a preserve area where you can hike and ride uh, horses and bicycles and, and such. And there was a hike that we were going to take on a thing called Mormon Trail to Hidden Valley. But between the two is a thing called Fat Man's Pass. And it said, you can't miss it. So you're hiking down Mormon Trail, and you get to this, this massive rock wall that, like, you can't climb up. Ordinary people like us couldn't climb up it. Can't go. I mean, it's huge. But there's this little crack that goes all the way through this massive rock formation that will get you over to Hidden Valley. It's called Fat Man's Pass because if, for some reason, I suppose, you're being chased by a fat man, you go through that, he's not going to make it through there. So that's the first thing. I think about this narrow gate. The second thing, and it's what some of you are already humming in your head, it's another song from 1979, but this time it's ACDC, and they're singing Highway to Hell. Now, I'm not going to sing that one for you, but it's this idea that, you know, broad is this highway to hell. You know, you, there, everyone's going to hell, you know, and the fire and brimstone and damnation and all that stuff. And, and, and granted, there, there is this idea that there are these two choices that have different endings. And if you have been raised in church, and if you've ever heard any sermons or lessons on this passage about the narrow and the wide gates and paths and, and those things, most likely what you heard was in relationship to eternity. And yes, and, and Jesus talked about heaven, and Jesus talked about hell. But I wonder if today, could we broaden our understanding on this passage about the narrow gate, the small gate, and the narrow road. Because while, yes, maybe Jesus was talking about eternity, it kind of goes against his tactics to try to scare people into the kingdom of God and remember the context of this sermon that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God here and now. And could it be that in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, in the context of the kingdom culture, in the context of life in the kingdom here and now, not just then and there, that maybe what Jesus is talking about here is not just what will happen when you die. Could he also be talking about what happens as you live? Not just what happens when you die, but what happens as you live. 
And could Jesus be just saying, this is the way of life? This is the way of life. I mean, you know this. That in, in life, when there's a, a narrow road, when there's a, a, a restricted, uh, limited uh, commitment, that, that that's vital. And actually, the narrow road leads to, to fullness. If you have a vision of something that's great, there's probably going to be a, a narrow road that will lead to that. That's just the way it works in life. You've seen this. We know this. Let me give you some examples. If you had this vision of becoming a doctor for whatever reason, great reasons, poor reasons, but you had a vision of becoming a doctor, there's a very narrow road to get you to that destination. There's a great deal of schooling. There's pre-med and then there's medical school and then there's going to be all kinds of times in books and libraries and labs and then there's going to be internships and residencies and then if you want to be specialized like a surgeon or even a more specialized surgeon like a hand surgeon or an eye surgeon or a brain surgeon, there's a lot more and there's going to be a lot of expense and there's going to be a lot of things you're going to give up. It's a very, very narrow path that will get you to that vision. You won't play video games in your parents' basement for 10 or 15 years and wake up one day and say, whoa, I'm a doctor. How did that happen? You don't drift into becoming a doctor. If you had a vision of being in a Philharmonic orchestra, then that's a very narrow road. I mean, you're going to have to take lessons and you're going to have to know music theory and you've got to be able to read music. And not just every good boy does fine and faces the space and which one is, 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 the, is the sharp. Oh, yeah, hashtag, that's a sharp one. Okay, it's going to take more than that. There's going to be scales and, and more lessons and relentless practicing and rehearsals and then just maybe, but it's a very narrow path that will get you there. If you want to become proficient in anything, it's a narrow path that will get you to that vision. That's just the way life works. And, and even if it's not anything grand like, like a, a, a position in, a, in an orchestra or a, or a career, what about in our own bodies? What, what, if you, what if you go to the doctor and he says, listen, you know, your, your cholesterol is high and, and your blood pressure is high and you're pre-diabetic and, and boy, I'm, I'm just worried you've got to have to make some changes if you want to live to see your grandchildren. And to have that health means you're going to have to maybe stop doing some things, stop eating some things, change some diet, start exercising. It's a narrow path. Financially, if you want to have a, a certain goal, man, it, it's, it's going to mean like living within your means and probably living below your means and staying out of debt and, 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 and putting stuff away in savings and investing and, and, and saying no to some things and not trying to be like everybody else so that you can have that goal. All the way through, you see this. That a narrow, restrictive uh, commitment and, and dedication and discipline towards something is actually very vital and brings about a great reward on the other side and actually brings about incredible freedom on the other side and brings about life. Now, the converse is true as well. That in life, you don't usually drift towards greatness. Most people just kind of go with the default mode. And it's not a narrow road. Just kind of do the path of least resistance. Whatever comes easiest. And most people do that. And that's where they end up. And maybe Jesus is just saying, that's how it is in life. And when he starts talking about the kingdom, he says, and that's the way to life. Because when we're talking about the kingdom 
and what you're doing with your life here and now and for eternity, the narrow path is the thing that's going to get you to where you want to go. That this is actually a very good thing. And so he says, this is the path to life. So back to Matthew chapter 7. He says, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only if you find it. He says, if you find this narrow path, if you go down this narrow road, if you go through this gate, it's going to open up for you the life that you were created to live. It's going to open up for you a life that you had no idea, that you won't find any other way. I grew up in the Portland-Vancouver area, and the, the separation between Portland and Vancouver is the Columbia River. And if you go east from either Portland or from Vancouver, you go into what is called the Columbia River Gorge. If you go up on the Washington side, you go on Highway 14 out through Camas, go up past Bonneville Dam, Bridge of the Gods, you can come back down I-84 on the Oregon side, and there's spectacular views uh, out there, amazing things to see. And every time we had relatives from out of town or visitors from out of town, we would take them on that loop because you could see some incredible things from the car. If you're willing to get out of the car, you can see even more. You can go on hikes, and there's different hikes. And, and there's, a, there's one hike. In fact, I, actually, I think it's closed right now because of the, uh, the Eagle Creek uh, forest fire that, that ravaged that area a few years ago. But on the Oregon side, just east of Multnomah Falls, there's a thing called the Oneota Gorge. I've been up it maybe three or four times in my life. And the Oneota Gorge, Gorge, when you go on this trail, it starts off and kind of there's this this, this stream, this little small river that's coming out, and you just take the the pathway, and it's beautiful. But as you go up this pathway along this stream, the gorge gets narrower and narrower and steeper and steeper. And you get to the point where the path, the trail, ends because the gorge has become so narrow that wall-to-wall, the water is running through. The trail doesn't go through there anymore. But I had heard that if you are willing to leave the trail and get into the water, and it can get up to three or four feet deep, depending on the time of year, and you'll go through that where there is no trail, that it opens up and you see something spectacular. So when our girls were um, small, early 2000s, I took them, I said, you guys, we're going to go up the Oneota Gorge, and we're going to go where everybody else stops, and then we're going to keep going. And we went, and I took them, and we're going, and for them, it was pretty deep. I'm helping them, I'm carrying them. And we go through, wade up through this water, and as we get through, there are these walls that are just covered with moss and ferns and beautiful trees up above. And then it kind of opens back up again, and you can walk in, and you go on back, and there's this spectacular Oneota Falls that the vast majority of people never, ever see, either because they weren't willing to get out of their car or they weren't willing to go beyond what was the easy path They weren't willing to go to where it got really narrow and there was actually a little bit of sacrifice involved and then they missed out on what is so spectacular. And maybe Jesus is saying, see, most people will get to a certain point and they'll go no further and they're gonna miss out on the best part yet. Robert Frost was an American poet and he's probably best known uh, for his poem, uh, The Road Not Taken, And he's probably best known for a couple of lines in that poem. In fact, full disclosure, I only know a couple of lines in that poem, and that's all I know really about Robert Frost. But at the end of this poem, The Road Not Taken, he concludes with these three lines. Two roads diverged in a wood and I. 
I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. In the woods, and there's these two roads, and there's a, ch- a decision. And he says, and I chose the one that was less traveled, that wasn't, that wasn't as taken as often, and that has made all the difference. And Jesus comes along and he says, there are two gates. One's wide, easy to go through. One's narrow, small. And they lead to two roads. One one of them is just like this highway. One of them is a small, narrow path. And one of them will lead to destruction. And one of them will lead to life. And most people will miss out on life. And this is where Jesus gets extremely clear, not at all vague, about the exclusivity of this path, of this, of this trail, of this gate. And this is what, when Jesus says these things, causes some people to be so offended by him and his words. Because Jesus makes it clear, if, you, if you've studied the words of Jesus at all, you will know what I'm talking about. He makes it really clear that the narrow path, the narrow gate, the narrow way is through him, it's through Jesus, and it's to Jesus. That that is the path. It's through Jesus, and it's to Jesus. Because it's easy to think, well, yeah, Jesus had some good stuff going, some good ideas, and it's a, it's, that's a great, that's, that's one of the options. Well, that seems like a, a, a great answer. And sometimes people will say, well, you know, all roads lead to God, all the religions, and, and they're all just different spokes on the, on the wagon wheel that leads to the same God. And actually, if you do even a cursory study of world religions, you know that it's not true. It actually can't be if you study them. But it's this idea that, well, maybe some people take the, uh, the, the eightfold path of, of Buddhism, or maybe some people follow the five pillars of Islam, or maybe some people buy into the whole uh, karma cycle of, of Hinduism or the piety of, of Confucianism, or, or maybe it's even the righteousness of Pharisees and, and religion that way. And Jesus is just one of those paths. But Jesus says, okay, I'm not just an option to consider for a little bit of a better life, and it's not just wisdom. Jesus comes along and says, I'm like bringing you the truth of the narrow gate and the road, and it's me. I mean, in John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. I'm the gate. You want to come through that narrow gate? It's me. Two verses later, in in verse 9, he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture, this beautiful life, the thief comes only to kill, to steal, to kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That Jesus says, I- I'm the gate. Th- this narrow path, it's through me and it's to me. That's where life is. And some would push back and say, well, that's what Jesus is saying to his followers. That's for him and his followers and others have. No, no, no. Jesus prayed this in John 17. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, implying there are false gods, but there's only one true God, and this is eternal life that they would know this one true God, and and Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, whom you have sent, that God, there is only one God, and you have sent me. And the one that 
probably is most familiar and is so off-putting to so many people is what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6. I, Jesus says, I am the way. Not, I found the way and I can point you to it. I can show you the way. I've got the path that goes to the way. I'm not a way. He says, I am the way. And not only that, I am the truth. Not just some good things to consider. I'm the truth. And as we'll look at briefly next week, when he says, I am the truth, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And he says, I am the way. I'm the path. I'm the gate. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is so offensive to so many people because it's so exclusive. And people say, this is bad news. This is why Jesus and religion and Christians and all this stuff. <laughs> but I want to show you, this is actually the best news ever that the only way to the Father is through him. It's not through my efforts it's not through my merits. It's not through my trying. It's not through what I can or can't do. It's not how well I keep the eightfold path of Buddhism or how I hold up the five pillars of Islam or, or whether or not I go through this birth and death cycle a million times. It's not about me. It's about what Christ has done. That's why it's the good news. Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit. We get in not because we're poor in spirit, despite the fact, in spite of the fact that we're poor in spirit. And Jesus says, it's through me. That, that's what makes this incredibly good news. But he says, it's very exclusive. And you've got to choose. Are you going to come through this narrow gate of me and come to me? And this narrow gate of Jesus actually is the path to the flourishing life. It's a path to the flourishing life. You know, sometimes, I think even in the church, we can get into this point or this idea where we just say, well, yeah, I know this is true and I know it's right, but we can do the exact same thing the Pharisees did, is that we can turn it into this limiting, lifeless legalism of drudgery, joyless existence where we're negative and critical, look down on others, don't even like our own lives, but it's the right thing and someday we'll get to heaven and spend eternity with the rest of these people who are all upset about life. <laughs> And Jesus said, I don't want any part of that. I don't want you to have any part of that. That's, if that's what it means, Jesus is saying, count me out. That's not what I came for. I came to have life and have it to the full. In fact, he uses uh, another picture. We won't, we won't have time to go into this uh, completely. But he uses another contrast uh, just a few verses later. And I think... What he's doing is that he's taking what he knows from the, from the uh, scripture, from the, the, the wisdom literature, from Psalm chapter 1, where you see this contrast again. Where the psalmist starts off the book of Psalms, I, I love Psalm 1, where he says, blessed is the man, like the, the, the happy life, the makarios life, remember the Beatitudes, the, this fortunate life, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or, or stand in the way of the sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, does not go the wide way, the easy way, the way everyone else does, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He goes a narrow way, and he's narrow in his meditation of God's word. And then he draws this picture, this analogy. He says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water, that bears fruit in its season and whose leaves never wither and whatever he does prospers. And then he goes on and says, not so the wicked, they're like chaff that blows away. He just sees this contrast. And I think Jesus draws from that because Jesus uses a similar contrast 
Not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but in his other teaching. Matthew chapter 7, verse 17, he said, Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. There's a contrast again. You've got a choice. You can be a good tree and have good fruit, or a bad tree and have bad fruit. In John chapter 15, he talks about this imagery, but this time he uses a vine and a branch. John 15, verse 4, he says, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I think sometimes we see this, he will bear much fruit, like this command, like Jesus saying you have to do this. Like if you're a good disciple of mine, you're, you have to. This is not a command. This is a promise. He's saying, don't you understand? When you re- remain in me and I remain in you, when we're doing life together, isn't that what the kingdom is about? To experience and live in the presence and the goodness and the power and the forgiveness and the grace and the gifts of God. And when you remain in me and I remain in you, You're like a tree that has just so much internal goodness flowing through it that it just produces good fruit. It's a promise. It's the way it works. You remain with me. My words remain in you. You fill your mind with my words. You continue to walk in me, invite me in. You you follow me. You surrender to me. You submit to me. I will bring about my heart and my transformation, and it will turn into the words and the actions and the life that is this beautiful life of good fruit. And he invites us, he says, but it's a narrow path. And I am that narrow path. All right. I'll close with this. Means we got another 30 or 40 minutes. Just kidding. I'll close with this. Years ago, um, when my dad was still alive, uh, he had a friend, very, very wealthy friend. The wealthiest man I've ever met in person. And This friend of his owned some property and some houses in Kentucky on a place called um, Lake uh, Lake Barkley. It's a a 58,000 acre uh, reservoir that was put together by the Tennessee Valley um, uh, Authority. It's this massive, uh, massive lake, reservoir lake in Kentucky. And uh, this friend had all this property, you know, waterfront property with some houses. And he said, hey, you know, Gerald does my dad. Uh, you and your family go use my place in Kentucky. And so we did. I mean, all of us. There was, I don't even know how many of us there were. A couple of big houses. And he said, just get there. Everything else will be provided. Got there. There were cars in the garage that we could use. They, we didn't have to rent cars. Uh, there were like off-road, uh, a, a motorcycle and, and uh, quads, uh, little, little uh, quad runners. And down at the dock, uh, he had multiple boats. There was a bass boat. There was a ski boat. There was a pontoon boat. There was uh, a really nice boat that they didn't let me use a whole lot. And, and then there was jet skis. I mean, it was just amazing. So one day, we were out on this, this lake on the pontoon boat with our, our parents and our, some of our family. And as we're coming back, one of, these, one of these fingers, my brother and I saw up on this bank, there was like this cliff bank. And then up above, we saw this, this cave. And, and we were like, we ought to go check out that cave. But we knew we couldn't do it from the water because it was just this sheer cliff. But it looked like if you came from on top, you could actually access the cave. 
And so we knew that it was on this property somewhere. So we were trying to kind of figure out, we are kind of make, taking our bearings, okay, there's those clump of trees and this one, and kind of trying to figure out so that we could see it from, from the top. So my brother and I, uh, he was smart enough to, to grab a flashlight. We went looking for this cave, found these trees that we thought, went, looked, got over the bank, and sure enough, we got into the cave. And it was cool. And it's not like this massive thing. We weren't, you know, heavy-duty spelunkers. But we're into this cave, opens up into this chamber, and there's different little uh, arms that go off. And we go, and most of them hit dead ends. On the back side of this cave, in the chamber back there, there was a, another corridor, a little pathway that went back. And as we went back, the farther we went, the lower the ceiling got. And it kept getting shorter and shorter, but just kept going back to where we were back actually down on our hands and knees. And we got to the point where even on our hands and knees, it wasn't going to work. And there was just this, this small opening. And my brother said, we ought to go back there. We shined the flashlight back, couldn't really see. And we threw rocks back in there. And we could hear and splash. Like, oh, cool. But I, I don't know. Now, my brother, his sense of adventure overpowered his common sense. Uh, his curiosity <laughs> far exceeded his wisdom. And he says, let's go back in there. And I said, ah, boy, I don't know. So my brother gets down. Now, if you're claustrophobic, just breathe or turn off the TV or whatever. My brother gets down on his belly and he starts doing this with the flashlight, going through and even getting lower to where he's kind of going like this. And I'm left in the dark in this cave. And he goes back. And I keep talking to him. And it's hard to hear because he's facing that way. And, and finally he gets through. And then he shines the light back on me. He says, you got to come in and check this out. And I was like, I don't think so. Like I'm four inches taller. And at that point, probably 45 pounds heavier than my brother. I'm like, I don't think I can make it through. He says, no, you can. I, I think you can. You just, just got to lay flat. I'm not normally claustrophobic. I, if I had time, I'd tell you about one incident that happened to me in the ninth grade. I got into this thing, dark, kind of trying to go through. I can feel the ground on my belly. I can feel the rocks on my back. And I'm trying to get through and just trying to think through. And J Jerry, my brother's just saying, you're doing good. You're going to make it. Come on through. I've already made it through. Come through. It was like the worst experience of my life. But when I got in there, it opened up into another cavern with this crystal cl clear water that was just beautiful, spectacular. It was frightening. And the only reason I went in was because my brother had gone in first. And Jesus invites us into the narrow gate because he's already gone through it. And it might be scary, and we might be unsure, but Jesus has already gone and he invites us in. In fact, Jesus took the narrowest way. He went in the most narrow path. In Philippians chapter two, it says that he was in very nature God, but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the narrowest way. Jesus in heaven decides to leave heaven and come to earth. It's the narrow way. And not just that. But Jesus, in his eternal creative power, becomes a created being. 
and he leaves all the riches of heaven to be a part of a family that lives in poverty. And all the glory and the splendor of everything in, in, the, in the cosmos to be wrapped in cloths and put in the feeding trough. And the unlimited, infinite nature of God becomes a limited child that has to learn to walk and talk and goes through all the things of teenagers. That's the narrow way. And then when he starts his ministry, he's in the wilderness and tempted. And he has before him the broad way to, to show his power, to show off his power. But no, 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 he chooses the narrow way. To have the glory of all the splendor of all the kingdoms of earth. But he says no, and he chooses the narrow road. And through his life, as he could have done anything for himself, he loves and he serves and he heals and he forgives and he touches the untouchable and he brings hope. And then in the garden, as he prays in agony, he knows what awaits him. Oh, there will be soldiers. There will be beatings and scourgings. There will be mockery. There will be a crown of thorns. There will be a cross. In fact, he prays, Father, is there any other way? Can, can you take this cup from me? But not my will. Your will be done. I'll take the narrow way. And they arrest him. And they crucify him. And he hangs suffocating on a cross. And all the physical and emotional pain of that crucifixion pales in comparison to being rejected by the Father when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he who knew no sin became sin. And when he breathes out his last, they take him to a cave, a pretty claustrophobic cave for the creator of the universe. And dark and cold, and it appears to be a dead end. That's a pretty narrow way. But by going through all of that, he comes out on the other side. And because of that, therefore God gave him the name that is above every name, that every name, that every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth should bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That he went through that narrow way so that he could have life and not just him, so that we could have life. We could have abundant life. We could have the fullness of life. We could have eternal life. We could have the kingdom life. And he says, follow me, follow me. I've already gone through the most narrow way. I've already provided a way for you. Follow me. So let's look at this verse one more time. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. And Jesus invites us to this kingdom life. 
And he says, and I'm not just talking about getting your ticket into heaven someday. I'm talking about your life here and now. And he presses us for a decision. What are you going to do? I don't care if you agree or disagree, like or dislike. Is this going to be the reality of your life? And he gives us the invitation to transformation. And he says, it's life with me in this narrow way. You are never alone. Christ is with us always. Here's what I want to do. This is the end of part one. Is this week, if we could live that with, with Christ life, that every day when you get up, every day when you come home, every day when you go out, every day when you go to sleep, every day, just invite Jesus to be a part of your life, to listen to him. Fill your mind with his word. Go back and reread the Sermon on the Mount. Read it every single day. Ask the Lord to speak to you. Give him, ask him to give you the strength because he is the way to life. And he invites us to experience the life we were created to live.